I appreciate you being here. We uh, began last week a study of the book of Daniel. We were in the first chapter last week, which was uh, the introduction of Daniel after he had been carried into Babylon as a, a refugee, Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem and his, uh, uh, reloca- his forcible relocation of the refugees from Judah. The prophecies had been made that they would be in exile for 70 years, and that time has begun. Ezekiel is out in the countryside with the people. Daniel, plucked from his family, uh, has been trained and raised up to serve the king, and he is in the halls of power. The dark side of that shows up in chapter 2. We're going to find uh, in this lesson that I've I've, I've entitled Interpreting God to the Culture. I talked last week about how Daniel is an example for us. There are the examples I I told you about of Esther who really accommodated the culture until she just couldn't anymore. She really tried to fly under the radar and keep a low profile. There was Jonah who hated the culture and was really put out with God that judgment didn't come, but mercy came instead. Daniel gives us a, a much better model of how to live in a hostile culture and, and put our faith on display. In the second chapter, he has been placed in the service of the king, and he is already among those who serve in an advisory capacity. That is, uh, he doesn't seem to have had the king's ear, but he is in a, uh, a, a, a contingent of those who uh, are tasked with uh, providing advice so that the king can make decisions. We're going to see that this king, is uh, Nebuchadnezzar, is a hard man, and he's going to uh, put his advisors in an extraordinarily difficult position And all of it, I think, so that God can put himself on display through the life of Daniel. Now, before I I get to the text, I want to read you a a little article. It's not real long, but um, it's an article written by Charles Colson when he was alive. It's, It's several years old. It's only more true and accurate today than it was when he wrote it. He's writing about a conference uh, that was held in Washington, D.C. about 15 years ago. And the conference was entitled uh, Conference on Spiritual Activism. And it was uh, basically uh, a group of left-leaning progressive Christians who were there to try and uh, establish an agenda for Christianity in America because by their own admission, in their minds, the, the conservatives were doing a better job at co-opting the religious audience. And so they were trying to figure out how to, how to turn American Christianity uh, into a force for progressive politics. I, I, want you to, I just want to read this because I want, I, want, I want this to set the stage for the example that Daniel has, even though he's millennia ago his model is going to fit because if anything this article by Charles Colson is only that much more dramatic 15 years after he wrote it it's entitled worshiping the goddess of tolerance what do you get when you hold a conference with 1200 people who are all afraid of offending one another I'll tell you what you don't get You don't get unity, and you don't get agreement on anything. That's what happened when the Spiritual Activism Conference took place recently in Washington, D.C. According to the New York Times, this group of religious liberals came together to discuss, quote, taking back religion from the conservative Christians. But the conference members had trouble getting anything specific done. The Times hit it right on the nose when it explained it this way. Turnout at the Spiritual Activism Conference was high, but if the gathering is any indication, the biggest barrier for liberals may be their regard for pluralism, for letting people say what they want, how they want to, and for trying to include everyone's priorities 
rather than choosing two or three issues that could inspire a movement. Never mind even setting policy goals, some conference members were afraid that even singing hymns might be enough to upset other members. Instead of coming away with a clear set of objectives, the conference members mostly came away frustrated. Ironically, for a group that prides itself on tolerance, it seems the only thing the conference could agree on was its opposition to the religious right. But frustra frustrating as it was for them, the group had to concede that the religious right is a lot better at getting things done. Beliefnet.com suggests this was, quote, because religious conservatives are willing to argue there is one correct view on policy issues. Hmm. You see, that's the crux of the liberals' problem. This conflict is not about political or social divisions. It's about authority. Specifically, whether or not Christians are willing to acknowledge that the Bible is our authority. Tony Campolo certainly recognized this. Colson says, though Tony and I disagree on lots of things, I really like him. He's honest and he loves the Bible. He tried to explain at this conference the necessity of following Scripture. But one participant retorted, I thought this was a spiritual progressives conference. I don't want to play the game of the Bible says this or that, and I don't want us to get our validation for something other than ourselves. There you have it. Validation from ourselves simply means you make up your own God. We Christians may interpret the Bible differently. We may apply it to life differently. We may have arguments over exegesis, but the Bible has to be the ultimate authority. Otherwise, we end up worshiping the goddess of tolerance and believing that tolerance takes precedence over truth. Dorothy Sayers, the great English writer, said it best. In the world, it is called tolerance, but in hell, it is called despair. The sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing for which it will die. This kind of so-called tolerance can never bring people together, but only, as we saw in Washington, pull them apart. That is the culture that we live in. The reason I start with that article is because I want you to understand whether it is what you hear from this pulpit or what you hear from truth currents, we are not battling the culture at the level of mere policy decisions. He is exactly right, Colson is in his article, the issue is what is our authority? And as long as authority is what I make up for myself, my own truth, my own morality, then the target of truth is always a shifting target. The goalposts are always moving, so you can never quite kick the, kick the ball through the goalposts. The only way for us to deal with a culture that is adrift without an anchor is to be the singular movement in the culture that has an anchor. Now, what we're going to see as we come to, as we come to Daniel chapter 2 is that Daniel is going to put on display in a very winsome and appealing manner exactly what that looks like when you live in a culture where they're grasping for something to hold on to and then they turn to someone like Daniel because his feet are grounded. He's standing in a solid place. Daniel chapter 2. My wife has already scolded me that there's too much print on this outline page. And she doesn't have enough room to take notes. So um, I don't know what to tell you. I, I gave you this detailed outline because I, 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 there's so much here and I, I wanted to just try and, and streamline uh, you trying to keep up with, with these lessons. But I want, you to, I want you to walk through this with me. 
We're going to start with Daniel 2, the first 13 verses, and what I've called Lessons from the World's Dilemma. Let me read these 13 verses, and then we'll talk about the situation in which Daniel is going to find himself. Daniel chapter 2, verse 1. Now, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king gave orders to call in the soothsayer priests, the conjurers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Then the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the dream to your servants, and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied to the Chaldeans, the command from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be turned into a rubbish heap. Now, we're going to come back and go through all these verses, but let me just stop right here. This is a tough boss. All right. We're going to see how this plays out. Verse 6, but if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell the dream to his servants and we will declare the interpretation. The king replied, I know for certain that you're trying to buy time because you have perceived that the command for me is firm that if you do not make the dream known to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed together to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the situation is changed. Therefore, tell me the dream so that I may know that you can declare to me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is no person on earth who could declare the matter to the king because no king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any soothsayer priest sorcerer or Chaldean. Moreover, the thing which the king demands is difficult, and there's no one else who could declare it to the king except God's whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. Because of this, the king became angry and extremely furious, and he gave orders to kill all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued that the wise men be killed, and they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. All right, here's the situation. The king has disturbing dreams. He brings in all of his soothsayers. We'll, we'll talk about those categories in just a minute. But this is what he says. This is a guy who's, who's familiar with the ways of bureaucrats. And they say, tell us your dream and we'll give you an interpretation. He goes, no, we're not doing it that way this time. This time... I want you to tell me my dream. And after you tell me my dream, then you give me the interpretation. But I'm not going to believe that you have an accurate interpretation unless you can tell me what the dream is. And they're like, you have got to be out of your ever-loving mind. Nobody can do that. Nobody can tell the king his dream. There's not a man on earth. There's not a sorcerer, a conjurer. There's not uh, an advisor. We can't get inside your mind. We don't know what your dream was. This is not fair. And then they say this, only a God who doesn't dwell with mortals could do such a thing as the king has asked. Now, the reason that's significant is because what we have here is a power confrontation being set up. They can't identify the dream, so they can't give an interpretation. And the king says, round them all up. I'm going to execute the whole lot of them. And then it's mentioned, we know that Daniel and his friends, in their roles in the palace, they have somehow come to be included in this uh, entourage that serves the king, because that while they weren't present in this moment, they're included as those who have to be gathered up because the king is going to kill all of his advisors. He's just going to start fresh. All right, that's the situation. Let's look at the lessons that come from this, this portion of the episode. First lesson is in verse 1 and in verse 3. Even powerful men 
fear the future. In verse 1, it says, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams and his spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. In verse 3, he says, I had a dream and my spirit is anxious to understand the dream. Here is the most powerful man on the planet at the time. He has no challengers. There are no enemies. There is no war on the horizon. There is no uh, invading army headed his way. He is absolutely, at this historical moment, secure on his throne. All of his enemies have been subdued or they are in captivity, and yet he can't sleep at night because his mind is churning with uncertainty about the future. He's having dreams, and he doesn't know what they mean, and he doesn't know how to live that way. Part of the propaganda of those in power in our generation is that they know best. I mean, I, I don't even have to pick any particular topics. We can be talking about the rules of the pandemic. We can be talking about how to, how to uh, fix the supply chain, how to, how to manipulate wars, and, and, and you can name any, any issue or topic of the day. And they're always going to present themselves as knowing exactly what needs to, to happen. The problem is, if we would pay any attention at all, we would understand that these same politicians do the same stuff over and over, one administration after another, and guess what? Nothing ever gets better. It's because they are afraid of the future. They just can't afford to let on. The second lesson is this, depending on the wrong advisors is dangerous. Here's the categories. It says he gave orders and he brought in soothsayer priests. Uh, in some translations, that's, tra that, that's translated magicians. Now, now don't, don't misunderstand. Magicians in the ancient world uh, were scholars. In fact, the magicians in Nebuchadnezzar's day would have been more akin to like medical doctors in our day. They would have been the ones who uh, studied the uh, properties of certain uh, ingredients and mixed things together to sort of magically produce answers to physical problems. So here, the word magic for us makes us think charlatan or, you know, whatever. Uh, these, these would have been respected advisors. These would have been men who typically had a pretty good handle on the best education available in their day. The soothsayer priest. Then he says, then he brought in the conjurers. Some translations call this enchanters. These were typically the astrologers. They were the ones trained in understanding how the influence of the stars and the movement of the planets influenced us. So right now you've got You've got the doctor types who, have, who are studying in, in, in sort of a primitive way the elements of chemistry and, and medicine and those kinds of things. But you've also got the astronomers who, who, who have become astrologers, and they study the way the universe uh, works, how it fits together, and they make decisions based on the influence of the world around them. Then it says he brought in the sorcerers. The sorcerers would have been what we would consider mediums or psychics. These would have been the ones who would have had uh, the responsibility to sort of peer into the abyss and, and possibly even speak with the dead to get advice that, that we in the, in the visible world couldn't have access to. Now, what we have here is uh, Nebuchadnezzar's covering his bases. Do I need a, a doctor type that understands the physical body? Do I need a, an astrologer type that understands the, the stars and the, and the planets and the way the universe sort of uh, operates? Do I need uh, a psychic type that can peer into the, in, into the unknown and draw information from places that, that, that other people can't get to? 
Well, let's bring them all in because they don't know exactly what I need in this situation. And then it says he brought in the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans were simply wise men. In effect, they were uh, his general advisors. They probably were the, the men that Nebuchadnezzar turned to for advice in the political realm. So imagine having a problem and you go out and assemble the best medical doctors, the best uh, naturalists or, or, or those who study the universe, uh, those with access to hidden information, mediums and psychics, and then you bring in all of your political gurus. Sounds like a CDC pandemic board. He brings them all in only to discover that with the best of his official advisors, he's not any closer to understanding the dilemma of his dream than he was when he got out of bed that morning. The next lesson, the smartest analysts are stupid without God's revelation. He says, tell me the dream before you tell me the interpretation. Well, King, we can't do that. It's not possible. In fact, not only can we not do it, there's nobody on the planet that can do it. It's unknowable. Now, remember what we have here. We have people who are supposed to know the secrets of nature, people who are supposed to understand the mechanics of the universe, people who claim to have inside information into the realm of the dead, and people who claim to have enough handle on human nature that they can set policy and advise politically in, to run an entire empire that is the unchallenged superpower in the world. And what do they say? They say, well, verse 11, the thing which the king demands is difficult and there is no one else who could declare it to the king except God's, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. He gave them strong positive and negative incentives. If you get this right, there is going to be wealth and glory and honor like you've never considered. But if you get this wrong... I'm not only going to take your head, I'm going to burn down your house, I'm going to make all your children homeless. There's a lot at stake here. And all they can say is, if we don't have some revelation from a God, we're helpless. Hmm. I wonder how much better our generation would be right now if we could get one political leader to stand up and say, you know, if we don't get some revelation from God, we are absolutely doomed. Here you've got pagans. Now they're referring to the pagan pantheon of, of gods. But it's a powerful thing when powerful men acknowledge that they don't have all the power. That's what's happening here. They're the smartest. They're literally, not figuratively, they're literally the smartest men in the kingdom. But they need revelation. That last lesson, even unaware of spiritual realities, the world serves Satan. Here's what I want you to see about that in verses 12 and 13. Because they couldn't identify the dream it says because of this the king became angry and extremely furious now this this is written there, there's some aramaic in the book of daniel there's also a little bit of persian later in the book uh, but this these these verses are in hebrew three different languages uh, mostly hebrew a little bit of aramaic a little bit of persian sprinkled in uh, to the book of daniel but it's 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 uh interesting in, in Hebrew, that, that it's written this way, when it says the king became angry and extremely furious, 
Hebrew doesn't have a comparative or superlative um, way of communicating. For example, that's why uh, the classic example is the, the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah sees the, the cherubim and the, and the seraphim and they're, and they're around the throne of God and they constantly are saying, holy, holy, holy. We sing a song, holy, holy, holy. But see, in Hebrew, there's no holy, holier, holiest. If you want to say holier, you say holy twice. If you want to say holiest, you say holy three times. The way you get to the comparative is to repeat a word. The way you get to the superlative is you do it three times. That was the way the language uh, is said. Now, in Hebrew here, that's what's happening. But to emphasize, it, they, they, they could just translate this that, uh, that the king was um, angry and angry. But what they're doing is they're trying to capture the, the meaning behind the Hebrew, and, and I actually like the way they've done it. it. It sounds a little redundant, but they're trying to emphasize he wasn't just angry. He was angry and extremely furious. I mean, it's like a whole new level of anger, which is why he's about to round them all up and kill them. Here's a king not used to not getting his way, and he can't sleep at night for his anxiety about the future. And none of these crooks can get him what he wants. So the decree was issued that the wise men be killed. And here's what's tacked on to this, to this, part, this paragraph. And they looked for Daniel and his friends to kill them. Now, The Old Testament is inspired by the Holy Spirit the same way the New Testament is. And so we have to take what's given to us and we have to take it seriously. There's not casual information just thrown in. There's not information that, that's just sort of superfluous that just kind of got mixed in. What we're supposed to understand here, see Daniel hadn't even been in the chapter so far. All we know about Daniel is from chapter one. We know that he uh, presented an option to, uh, to his trainer. We don't want the food that's been dedicated to the gods. We want to we wanna have a, a simple life that, because we follow a different God. Well, I can't let you do that. The king will be upset. Well, why don't you test us and see if we don't come out better than everybody else? Well, we saw God gave them favor because of their unbroken loyalty to him. That's chapter one. We don't know what Daniel's doing. We don't know where he is. We don't know what his job assignment is. We simply know that now the, the cream of those advisors, the, the, the bureaucracy class, if you will, they've been summoned to the king. Daniel is young. I mean, if he's, if he's not still a teenager, he's probably not over being in his early 20s. And he's in this, uh, he's in this, this line of training to, to be one of these advisors someday to the king. The king's decision is comprehensive. Everybody that's involved in this, round them up. I'll start fresh. I'll get a whole new group of advisors. Here's the thing about that. The king, except for when he identified Daniel and his friends as the best of those that he interviewed. Remember, we saw that last week. Daniel didn't meet the king until all the training was over, all the education had been done, everything was in place, and then they were presented to the king for the king to, to, to identify the best of the best of the best. That was the only time that, that, that Daniel had even crossed paths with the king. The king doesn't know him from Adam. And yet, who's really driving this train? It is the enemy of God's people. Why? Because he is, see, let's just take a step back. Theologically, Babylon is both an empire used by God in the ancient world to accomplish his purposes. Okay? The whole prophecy about the exile, God knew how this was going to unfold. 
Babylon was used by God to accomplish his purposes. That does not deny the reality that Babylon was also motivated to act against the Jews, the people of God, not because there was a particular animosity of Babylonians towards, towards Israelites or Judeans, but because there is an enemy that hates God's people. Let me give you a parallel example. Um, I did a little research. This has been several years ago, not, not recent, but I did a little research a few years ago and found out that something like 70-something, 70 72 or 74% of all United Nations um, resolutions that condemn something, that um, censor a nation, almost three-quarters of all resolutions that censor a country for the United Nations globally Almost three out of four are directed at the nation of Israel. Now think this through for a minute. Israel, relatively speaking, is a postage stamp sized nation in the middle of nowhere. There is no human explanation why Israel would command so much of the world's attention, why the United Nations would spend so much time throwing rocks at Israel. There's no explanation for that, except that the powers that be are motivated unknowingly by an enemy that hates Israel. That same enemy hates the United States for very similar reasons. Here we have an example of an, the invisible enemy behind the political power structures of the day acting in a way that will wipe out all of these Babylonian advisors so that in that net will be caught up these young men who have had such an unshakable testimony to the one true God. Satan is an idiot, but he's not an idiot. He's an idiot in the sense that he still believes that somehow he can win this battle. But he's not an idiot in the sense that he's a pretty good strategist. And he has created a situation where he hopes to take, Daniel, I believe, is the target of this attack. The Babylonian advisors, they're just collateral damage. The world unknowingly serves Satan's purposes. All right? All right, verse 14. Lessons from Daniel's example. This is where Daniel steps into the chapter. Verse 14. Then Daniel replied with discretion and discernment to Arioch, the captain of the king's bodyguard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He said to Arioch, the king's officer, for what reason is the decree from the king so harsh? Then Arioch informed Daniel of the matter. So Daniel went in and requested of the king that he would give him a grace period so that he might declare the interpretation to the king. When Daniel went to his house and informed his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah about the matter, so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his friends would not be killed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel said, may the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It is he who changes the times and the periods. He removes kings and appoints kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to people of understanding. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter." Now, we're going to come back to that prayer in just a minute, but let's, let's read the rest of this section. Verse 24. 
Thereupon Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to kill the wise men of Babylon. He went and said this to him, Do not kill the wise men of Babylon. Take me into the king's presence, and I will declare the interpretation to the king. Then Arioch hurriedly brought Daniel into the king's presence and spoke to him as follows, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can make the interpretation known to the king. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered before the king and said, As for the secret about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, sorcerers, soothsayer priests, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However... There is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. This was your dream and the visions in your mind while on your bed. As for you, O king, while on your bed, your thoughts turn to what would take place in the future, and he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will take place. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living person, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. All right, let's talk about this. The first lesson that we draw from Daniel's part in this story is that dealing with the world is done best with wisdom and tact. Look at what happens here. They come and find Daniel. He doesn't know anything about what's going on, and they have to explain to him why he's, in effect, being arrested. He's going to be taken away, and he's going to be killed. Daniel asks the question, what what is behind this? Why is the king's decree so harsh? And Arioch, the, uh, the man in charge of the executions, explains to Daniel what's going on. Now, There is in this conversation by this young man, Daniel, the same kind of poise that we saw him display in chapter one when he goes to the trainer who says, you have to eat this food, you have to do these things. Daniel goes to the trainer in chapter one, and he not only says, we don't want to do this, but he offers a solution. He says, here's here's another thing that, that I'd like you to consider. Daniel has an incredible uh, that was Ashpenaz in chapter 1. Here with Arioch in chapter 2, he has that same kind of poise that really uh, displays that he has a wisdom already well beyond his years. Now, there seems to be an implication that somewhere between chapter, I mean, verse 15 and verse 16, there's an ongoing conversation. Because in verse 15, he gets the explanation from Arioch about why he's being arrested. But by verse 16, it says Daniel went in and requested of the king. I, 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 I severely doubt that it means Daniel walked into the presence of the king, but I think it meant he went to where the king was and, 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 and sent a, a suggestion or made a request that made its way to the king. Apparently, the king had uh, taken a breath and he pauses the, the order to allow a little bit of time. Now, why would he do that? Because as angry as he is to have the wise men killed, the real problem here is he is grasping at straws to find somebody who can give him an interpretation of this dream that is keeping him up at night. And so when the idea comes, give this, give this young man a little bit of time, uh, the king apparently grants that wish. Daniel has poise, he has wisdom, He has tact. We've got to be careful that in a culture that wants to throw rocks at us, that we don't respond by throwing rocks back at them. That's not the strategy that will be effective. Now, the second lesson. Prayer, alone and with others, is a first resort in crisis. Look at what happens in verse 17. Daniel goes to his house. He informs his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their Hebrew names. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're Babylonian names. And this, I want you to, I want you to notice, um, I want you to notice what they ask. They, th- this is a remarkable 
prayer. Most, most of us, <laughs> most of us, when we find ourselves in a situation like this, uh, we figure out a strategy and then we go do it. And then we, and then we hope that God will bless it somewhere along the way. Daniel is a remarkable example here of not acting first and praying later, but praying first before he acted. And the remarkableness about this prayer, these are four, if they're not, as I said, if they're not teenagers, they're, they're young 20-somethings. The remarkable thing about their prayer is right up front, and I, and I don't want you to miss this, verse 18, they didn't say, God, we need some information. They said, he, he called them together so that they might request compassion from the God of heaven concerning this secret. In effect, they're not praying for information, they're praying for mercy. Because they understand this. God loves to reveal himself, but he only reveals himself to a humble heart. God, you want to let me in on a secret? You want to give me the, the juice that I need to, to, to get out of this situation? No. Let me, let, here's a spoiler, only because you know what's coming. We're going to have another chapter here pretty soon, next week, where his, four fr his, his friends, his three friends, are going to be faced with a decision. Next week's lesson is called uh, uh, Knowing When to Bow. Chapter 3, Knowing When to Bow, some of that chapter must go back to chapter 2 because they've now established a pattern of saying, God, you do what you're going to do because you're God and we want whatever you want. But if you'll show us mercy, we're willing to be used however you see fit. I love this prayer. They didn't ask for information. They asked for compassion because their hearts were humble and they knew that God loves to reveal himself to humble hearts. Now, there's no indication uh, between verse 18 and verse 19. There's no indication of exactly how long they prayed, but apparently the answer did not come until sometime later. And I, if that's correct, if my reading of this text is correct, um, there's a lesson there as well because Daniel and his friends had an incredible confidence that allowed them to wait on God without panic. How many times do we say, God, I, I, need, some, I need to know something and I need to know it right now. I, I, I've got a decision to make. I've got people waiting on me. I, I, I've, I've got to know. Daniel and his friends said, Lord, we're, we're praying for compassion. We want you to be glorified. We want you to work this out. We want you to, to do this the way you do it. We just, we just want to get to be a part of it. We don't know how long that prayer took. We don't know how long they were in prayer. But however long it was, they were willing to stay there because this was God's timing. Man, if we could, and, and I'm talking to me more than I'm talking to you. If we could learn how to walk in the timing of the Spirit of God, we would reduce our stress levels by 100%. He's got a sword hanging over his head, and yet he's not caught off guard. He's not panicking. The next lesson, grateful praise, is crucial to spiritual maturity. These are the verses that, that are recorded here. Uh, they're in poetic form because this, uh, because this sets off the prayer. But what, what happens here is um, it says the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Now, they've been praying. The first prayer is not recorded, except that they were going to pray for compassion. That's all we're told. 
But then that prayer is answered because God gives Daniel the information he needs to go back to the king, but he doesn't hop up and race back to Nebuchadnezzar. He prays a second prayer, and this prayer is recorded for us, which I think is significant because this is the prayer of grateful praise. May the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. It's he who changes the times and the periods. He removes kings and appoints kings. Listen, Daniel's not just quoting a poem. This is how he's able to have the patience and the, and the poise to face this crisis because undergirding his entire faith is this rock-solid belief that Nebuchadnezzar, even though he's the most powerful man on earth, he's not calling the shots. God raises up rulers and he puts them down in his timing, according to his purposes, in his ways. That's why I tell you to quit listening to the media. If, you, if we would read our Bibles as much as we watch cable news, we would quit being so frazzled at all the stuff that's going on and we would have this rock to stand on that says the world is raging all over itself, but God is the one who determines how things turn out. That's what Daniel understood, and that's what's in this prayer. He removes kings and appoints kings. He gives wisdom to wise men and knowledge to people who understand It's he who reveals the profound and hidden things. Why? Because he knows what's in the darkness, and light dwells with him. Hmm. God wants us to know what he's up to. That's verse 24. Daniel goes back to Arioch. He says, and, and, and I love this. Here again, I'm not Daniel. I'd have been, honestly, I'd have been real tempted to say, you can take out all those guys because they're worthless. But I got the answer. What did Daniel do? Don't let this thing happen. Don't, don't, don't kill any of these people. Send, send word to the king. I, I've got his interpretation. I've got the news that he's waiting for. God wants us to know what he's up to. Daniel could be trusted with revelation for one reason only. It's because he would only give credit back to God. I love this. Verse 30, when, when he tells the king that he has the, the news, he says, As for me, this secret has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living person. I'm not better than the rest of those guys. I'm just as much in the dark. I'm just as much out there un, unable to read the king's mind as anybody else. But for the purpose of making the interpretation known, God gave it to me. God. God's responsible. Daniel, from every moment it comes up, God, he is putting God as the one who deserves all the credit. God wants us to interpret his plans to our generation. The dream that Nebuchadnezzar is that's going to be revealed here is a dream of what I would call the history of human civilization in advance. It's, a, it's an insight into history that hasn't happened yet. And here it is, this secret information is being presented by this young 20-something, which simply does nothing but make it a more forceful testimony to the one true God. You see, the world doesn't need to hear the truth of God from us in a way that makes us look like we're just that smart. It's the Apostle Paul saying, listen, I didn't come to you with persuasive speech. I'm not a great speaker. I mean, nobody's going to confuse me for one of the great orators of the day. But the fact that I'm not among the beautiful people, I'm not the best and the brightest, I, I'm, I'm not slick and smooth. I don't have a Hollywood smile. The fact that 
the power of God to salvation, which is the gospel. When it comes from me, the apostle Paul, when it comes from me, nobody has any illusion about who's responsible for it. Because there's nothing in me to make this happen. All of the great men and women of God in Scripture have had that approach. That's why that's why pastors and it's not it's not mega church pastors it's not television pastors it's not any certain kind of pastor because frankly you can pastor 35 people in the country church and still be pretty full of yourself but god won't produce amazing results in a place where pastors and leaders take credit because God's not going to share credit. He can give this information to Daniel because Daniel is hands off on the credit. I only know this because God wants you to know it and he's just using me. Daniel could be trusted with revelation. That's why God revealed himself that way. He wants to trust us with revelation, and we live in a generation that desperately needs to know God. You know what our job assignment is in 2023? We need to know God, and we need to show God. It's that simple. Remember, I talked to you on Sunday about the purposeful call of the obvious. Quit being intimidated thinking that you have to have a seminary degree with a bunch of credentials before you can talk to somebody about Jesus. God does his best work with regular folk. And he does his greatest work with regular folk who know they're regular folk. Well, let's look at lessons from the dream. In verse 31, let's finish the chapter. I'm running out of time. That's never happened to me before. Verse 31, this is Daniel speaking. You, O king, were watching, and behold, there was a single great statue. He's outlining the dream, the hidden information that the, that the rest of them didn't have. You were watching, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary radiance, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued watching until a stone was broken off without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed to pieces all at the same time, and they were like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. This was the dream, and now we will tell you its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the honor. And wherever the sons of mankind live or the animals of the field or the birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold. And after you, another kingdom will arise inferior to you. Then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, just as iron smashes and crushes everything. So like iron that crushes, it will smash and crush all these things. And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have within it some of the toughness of iron, since you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And just as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong and part of it will be fragile. In that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in their descendants, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not combine with pottery. All right, let's, let's not get to the end of the chapter. Let me just talk about this part, because this is the dream and the interpretation. 
Lessons from the dream. First of all, man's perspective on human achievement is overblown. Daniel describes this statue, and look at the language that he uses in, in verse 31. He says, there was a single great statue, a statue which was large and of extraordinary radiance. It was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. It's almost like he can't get enough vocabulary words into the, into the verse to describe just extraordinarily how impressive this statue was. The statue represents the progression of human civilization, and frankly, I think it's meant to point to the pride of advancement and technology that man usually feels. There's a transfer of world power from each of these successive empires, but it, you see it in, in our day and time with this idea of just how proud we are uh, of, of who we are. I love, the, I, I love running across this, this attitude. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery, this idea that everything new is better than everything old. You listen to some people talk. We are literally living in the generation of the, of the smartest people in the history of the planet. When the fact of the matter is, we are about as dumb as posts. Why? Because more than any generation before us, we have made ourselves the measure of all things. And what we think is a massive tribute to us is really nothing more than uh, a poor shadow of what could have been. We live in a day of, of, of the Tower of Babel. We're always doing things that we think sort of makes us godlike. Man's perspective on human achievement is overblown. We're too impressed with ourselves, generally speaking. But world history is not arbitrary or accidental. There is a plan and a goal. History is moving toward a conclusion. And we experience human history the same way that we go to the theater and watch a play. A play has been written. It's been composed entirely by an author. But we sit in the audience and we experience that play one act at a time as it progressively moves towards its conclusion. That's what's happening in human history. Truth, uh, here truth is being explained in terms of what's coming. Now, uh, I, I, don't, I really do not have time to, to go through the details of this, but, but just to say that here's a statue. It's got a head of gold. It's got arms and a chest made out of silver. It has uh, the, the torso is made out of uh, bronze. The legs are made out of iron. The feet are made out of iron and clay mixed. Um, almost universally, the understanding of this image is that uh, we know that the, the head of gold was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire because Daniel makes it very clear. He says, this is you. History tells us that Babylon was, in fact, called the Golden Kingdom. It was literally saturated with gold. Herodotus was a historian, a Roman historian, who visited, uh, not a Roman historian, uh, an, an ancient Greek historian, who visited Babylon about 100 years after Nebuchadnezzar died. And in his writings that he, that he left, he wrote that in all of his life, he had never seen more gold nor imagined there could be so much in the earth as he saw when he visited Babylon. It was the golden kingdom. The silver kingdom next was the Persian kingdom. Um, it's called the Medo-Persian kingdom because that empire was uh, a, a hybrid empire. The, the Medes and the Persians came together to create the Medo-Persian empire. Here you have an, an inferior empire in the same way that silver is inferior to gold. Uh, the Medo-Persian empire did not operate as efficiently as the Babylonian empire. It was never as fully dominant in the world as the Babylonians. It was an inferior empire. And because it was two parts that had been put together, it's represented by the chest and two separate arms. 
Next, we have the bronze part of the statue, uh, which represented Greece, particularly the Greece under Alexander the Great, which became an empire that dominated the entire world of its time period. Uh, The Greek army was recognized as an army dressed in in bronze. Their weaponry, I mean, their uh, armor was bronze. This is an appropriate uh, picture here. Now understand, this is given to Nebuchadnezzar. None of this has happened. This is future history. After the bronze kingdom of the Greeks, there is the iron kingdom, which is Rome, the strongest of all the kingdoms of human history, but also the most flawed. It was a republic from about 146 B.C., but about 50 years after Jesus, um, it became an empire, a dictatorship, lasted another uh, four-plus centuries. That is, the, uh, that is the iron of this statue. Now, we'll get more into this later in the book of Daniel when he begins to give us prophecy that is related to the end times. But this progression of of civilizations, of empires, Babylon, Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, then the feet. The feet are made of iron, meaning they're related to the Roman Empire, but they're also mixed with clay, meaning it's not nearly as strong. It's not nearly as sturdy. It represents the feet and the ten toes. We'll see this when we get to the prophetic passages. What happens is after the the Roman Empire passes off the scene, there is at some point a Roman-related power that comes to the globe. But it is fragile because it is not made up of those who are bound together. It is a a cobbled-together assembly of, of forces. Just hold that thought and we'll get there in, in, the, in the closing chapters of, of the book of Daniel. But here's what I want you to see. There's a lesson here that human government is deteriorating. From the Babylonian Empire through each of these successive empires, finally to an empire that is by definition weak. It looks strong. It has iron in it. But the iron in itself is not sufficient. It has uh, real weaknesses in it. Human government is deteriorating. There is a writer by the name of uh, Alexander Tyler who, was, who wrote about democracy um, when America was still colonies. But he wasn't writing about American democracy. He was writing about uh, the Athenian Republic, which had fallen uh, over a thousand years earlier. But I want you to hear what he says because what he was speaking more than 200 years ago about the Athenians more than a thousand years before that. See if any of this sounds like something that is familiar to you in our day and time. Professor Alexander Tyler said about Athens, but it's certainly applicable. He said, a democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. It can only exist until the voters discover that they can vote themselves money from the public treasury. From that moment on, the majority always votes for the candidates promising the most money from the public treasury, with the result that a democracy always collapses over loose fiscal policy, followed by a dictatorship. The average age of the world's great civilizations has been 200 years. These nations have progressed through the following sequence from bondage to spiritual faith. We went from being uh, uh, held captive, in a sense, by the British government. We only were able to fight the Revolutionary War because of the First Great Awakening, which Sidney Alstrom refers to as America's conversion experience. We had revival, which gave us the spiritual and moral backbone to become a nation. Here's the process. The sequence is from bondage to spiritual faith. 
from spiritual faith to great courage, from courage to liberty, from liberty to abundance, from abundance to selfishness, from selfishness to complacency, from complacency to apathy, from apathy to dependency, from dependency back to bondage. If you want to real quickly run through American history in your head, I would say that we have sailed past apathy, we are squarely in dependency, and we are headed toward bondage. But here's the lesson. God's kingdom will not be stopped. Verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Just as you saw that a stone was broken off from the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, so the dream is certain and its interpretation is trustworthy. God's kingdom will establish itself and in the process wipe away all the remnants of human empires. It will be sudden in its arrival. It will be global in its scope. And there will be no successor. And here's the close. The man who knows God will have influence and impact in his generation. Verse 46. Then, Neb then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid humble respect to Daniel and gave orders to present to him an offering and incense. The king responded to Daniel and said, Your God truly is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, since you have been able to reveal this secret. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts. And he made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. Daniel's role was to maintain the honor of the true God in the very palace of Babylon. He was given two positions as a result of, as an honor because of what he did. He was made governor over the capital province. Remember, we're talking about a 20-something. Made governor over the capital province and chief over all the royal advisors. This, from this time forward, nobody would have had more frequent and significant contact with the king of Babylon than a young man captured in Jerusalem and carried into captivity by the name of Daniel. And then he asked one favor, and that is to establish his friends in positions of significant service as well. Here's the bottom line. No matter what happens in our culture, if we will stay loyal to the true God and to the truth of his word, he will advance us to positions of influence in ways we could never have imagined or strategized on our own. You see, either God is God or he's not. Decide now and live by that. Father, thank you for your word. For what you teach us from Daniel, what we find in these verses of this chapter, Lord, it is a, an extraordinary account of what happens when a young man puts all of his ways in your hands and trusts you. Father, in 2023 America, let us be such people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.